All right, my friend, the doors to Panic to Peace are open, and I'd love for you to join me along with others who are on a similar journey as you to learn how to push past your anxious thoughts, the symptoms, panic, and fears, and start experiencing lots more peace, joy, freedom, and adventure. In Panic to Peace, you get six weeks of live teachings from me, Q&A time, a one-on-one session with me upon completion of the course, and everything that's already included in the self-paced version of Panic to Peace. And it's a lot. And speaking of one-on-ones, I am now offering coaching packages and coaching sessions so that you can receive the personal, individualized coaching from me that you've been asking for. For all of the info on Panic to Peace and my coaching packages, head to the links in the show notes. So when parents are a bit inconsistent, that can leave you feeling pretty anxious. One day your needs are being met, the other day they're not. So you get anxious, you get clingy, right? You need reassurance. You never know if they're going to be there or not. So because of these experiences, after going through my own journey and my own therapy and whatnot, I had identified that it impacted me in a lot of ways. Like in my relationships, I had a hard time um, opening up to people, trusting people. I was avoidant. I was also clingy. It was just a big mess, essentially, because of, you know, not having that secure base with my parents. Welcome to a Healthy Push podcast. I'm Shannon Jackson, former anxiety sufferer turned adventure mom and anxiety recovery coach. I struggled with anxiety, panic disorder, and agoraphobia for 15 years. And now I help people to push past the stuff that I used to struggle with. Each week, I'll be sharing real and honest conversations along with actionable and practical steps that you can take to help you push past your anxious thoughts, the symptoms, panic, and fears. Welcome. You're right where you're meant to be. Hi, Amy. Welcome to a Healthy Push podcast. I am so grateful to have you joining me today. And before we dive into our topic of trauma, can you just give an intro to who you are and what you do? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So my name is Amy Tran. I have a master's degree in clinical psychology, and I'm currently a PhD candidate in clinical psychology. So for those who are not familiar with what clinical psychology is all about, it's a program that trains me to become a psychologist. So then I'm able to provide therapy for individuals, as well as administer assessments that can, you know, warrant me to give a diagnosis. And I've been trained to work specifically with children and adolescents. So cool. So I stumbled upon your page on Instagram and I was just so excited because you share so many, so many different and helpful specific topics um, and you really share them in a way where it's like pretty and pleasing to the eye, but you're so informative and I just love that you have different topics that you go into. So today we're going to talk about trauma and more specifically little t trauma. And I'm sure some people might be thinking, what the heck is little t trauma? Because when I saw a post on your Instagram page, I said the same thing. I was like, whoa, this is a thing. So can you just start by explaining what is little t trauma? Yes, absolutely. So little t trauma, I would say, is different from big T trauma in that when we think about big T trauma, 
we think about a significant life-threatening event that puts someone at risk for serious injury. So these can be things like natural disasters, assault, uh, car accidents. So a really, really abrupt and significant event. And usually what ends up happening is the person that has experienced the big T trauma ends up developing symptoms of PTSD. But when we think about little trauma, it's different in the sense that it's not necessarily life-threatening, but it still causes a lot of harm to the self. So little T trauma can look like enduring emotional abuse, enduring bullying, um, financial struggles, living in a system of oppression, systematic racism, for example. And the dangerous thing, and the research does show that repeated instances of little T trauma can actually have a more devastating effect than big T trauma because it is reoccurring. And because it's reoccurring, it can also not only add up, but it can be more subtle and not picked up by the people in your life or health professionals. So that's kind of what little t trauma is. And I'll also say a disclaimer, I am not a trauma expert. I am still a student in training. So what I talk about today isn't going to talk about, you know, the connection that trauma has on your nervous system and your brain. It's a whole, whole, whole rabbit hole that we don't have time or I don't have the expertise to dive into. Um, But I would say that's how I think about little t trauma. And because I have a lot of training in child development and my research and clinical experiences and interests are within the parent-child dynamic. When I think about little t trauma, what I really think about is that all humans want to feel safe, seen, and soothed. They want to feel secure. But when that doesn't happen, then they start to believe that there might be something wrong with themselves. They might feel insecure. They develop these really sad core beliefs about being unlovable, unworthy, helpless. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when little t trauma really can impact us is those early experiences with our families and our parents that kind of contribute to these types of beliefs developing. Yeah, for sure. And thank you so much for distinguishing between the big T trauma and the little T trauma, because when I came across this and I was like, oh, this is so interesting. And it's almost like I don't like the, the fact that it's called little T trauma, because you're right when you say, you know, they might be not life threatening, but they're often reoccurring and severely damaging. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious from your perspective, because I know this is something that a lot of people may be able to relate to. Would divorce be considered a little T trauma? I think it really depends. Um, And I also like how you mentioned you don't really love the term little T trauma because, yes, I think it's a bit invalidating, right? Like everything that you've endured, oh, it's little T. Um, (laughs) So I think divorce, it really depends, right? Obviously, we know that some divorces have a bigger impact than others. It really depends on what's going on, how the separation happens, and what are the consequences of the separation. So I think it really depends. But coming back to your point about the term little t trauma in that invalidation piece, for me, I always say, if it's trauma, if it was traumatic to you, then it's trauma, right? I'm not in a place to say 
as little, it was big or whatever. If it's traumatic to you, it's traumatic. And in fact, instances of little T trauma can show up in similar ways as big T trauma. It really just depends on what's going on and the resources that the people have to cope. Yeah. So let me give you a little bit of context because it's so funny as I'm sitting here and like I I, I just had, you know, divorce and I'm throwing that out there because it was a personal experience of mine. And so I'm being a little bit selfish in this scenario. Um, but I remember, I just want to give context. I remember sitting in therapy and I think I was probably, you know, 23, 24 years old at the time. And we were discussing some of my childhood and I could not believe that being in my early adult years, I was still so profoundly impacted by my parents' divorce. And, you know, you had said, you know, the parent-child relationship, all of that is so crucial um, in your developmental phases. But I just remember sitting there in the therapist's office and thinking, why am I not past this? This is so crazy that their divorce still has such an impact on me as an adult. Um, but it was something that I endured, like you said, every day. It was reoccurring. There was, it wasn't just, of course, the divorce, like the situation itself. There was so much behind the scenes that happened. So I'm glad you said that too. Yeah, it, it's, you know, different for everyone. There are so many different circumstances. Um, but I'm going to stop being selfish. <laughs> I know. I'm so glad you said, though, because it is validating to hear if you feel it was traumatic for you, it was trauma. And mm-hmm. and for me at that point in my life, you know, I didn't think that I had been through trauma. I was like, my parents divorced. Like, that's something that happens, right? Like, that's kind of seems like a, a normal, quote unquote, normal everyday thing now. But it it's still traumatic. And I was like invalidating, of course, my experience and, and not recognizing that that was significantly traumatic to me. Um, and I think that's where I want to go back to you. The little T traumas often don't seem as big, right? And as substantial. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you often don't label it, your experiences maybe as trauma, but some things that you wouldn't think are trauma can definitely be trauma. So I know you have shared on your platform platform and I, I've come across a couple of posts, you um, are very, um, what is the word, vulnerable. Um, and you talk and share about some of your experience um, with trauma as a child. So I would love for you to dive into a little bit of that. And I thank you for being vulnerable here because I know that many people will be able to um, relate and, and it will be helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd love to. And I want to thank you for being vulnerable, right? Yeah. I think it's not it's not selfish. I think that <laughs> sometimes we tend to label that because our label when we talk about ourselves is selfish because we gaslight ourselves and maybe other people have gaslighted us and sometimes we don't feel comfortable taking up space, right? So, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I thank you for sharing too. Um But yeah, I can absolutely share some of my experiences. So um, my parents are both from Vietnam. So one of them immigrated here and the other was a refugee that came here. So they have endured a lot of significant stressors in their life. And I would call them traumatic. And both of them didn't have the resources to process that. It's not a thing to go to therapy and they didn't have the social supports or even conversations like this where they can openly talk about their struggles. So, and they were young at the time. So when they came here to Canada, I'm from Canada, 
um, they had me. And when we think about a secure parent-child relationship, we think about, like what I said, is a child feeling safe, right? And secure. So feeling safe, feeling like they're seen and validated, and feeling like their parents are able to soothe them when they're in distress. And when those pieces are missing, that can have a really strong impact on how we are, and it carries on to adulthood. So I'll give you some examples. So for example, my father was very, very cold. Now, I knew deep down that he loved me. I know that given the things that he provided for me and my childhood and my family. But when it came to emotions, when it came to touch, that was just non-existent. When it came to talking about emotions, it was just no, 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 no. So because of that, I really lacked the feeling of feeling like I was seen. So when I was crying, it wasn't like, Amy, what's going on? Let's work through this together. It's more like, oh, crying isn't going to fix anything. (laughs) So I learned to shut down, right? To avoid my emotions. I learned that emotions weren't safe. On the other hand, my mother, uh, she was lovely. She was a bit warmer, but very inconsistent because she was going through her own stuff as well. So when parents are a bit inconsistent, that can leave you feeling pretty anxious. One day your needs are being met. The other day they're not. So you get anxious. You get clingy, right? You need reassurance. You never know if they're going to be there or not. So because of these experiences, after going through my own journey and my own therapy and whatnot, I had identified that it impacted me in a lot of ways. Like in my relationships, I had a hard time um, opening up to people, trusting people. I was avoidant. I was also clingy. It was just a big Mm -hmm. mess, essentially, because of you know, not having that secure base with my parents. I also lacked emotion regulation skills because my parents never taught me to regulate my emotions. And because I grew up a lot around invalidation, I ended up invalidating myself. So you just model what I modeled, what my parents, how they handled emotions. Um, And My parents actually ended up getting divorced too when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty hard because there was a lot of conflict at home. And I just didn't learn what a healthy love looked like. So I had to navigate the romantic world without that model. Um, So it was tough, you know? Um, Yeah. Yeah, I so appreciate you sharing all of this. I can resonate with so many things that you've said. Can you talk a little bit about regulating emotions? Because I think that is not a really well understood thing. Like what does being able to properly regulate your emotions look like? Mm -hmm. I think that regulating emotions starts with first being comfortable and feeling safe in your body because emotions do trigger a lot of physiological responses. Like if you think about when you experience anxiety, I mean, you know, cause you're like an anxiety expert, you get the heart racing and, you know, um, tightness in your body. And if that feels unsafe for you, because you don't know how to deal with that, you're going to cope or dissociate or maybe adopt an unhealthy 
coping strategy. So I think it's first learning how to soothe your own body, whether that be with deep breaths or movement, just go calming down your body. And then the next step is labeling the emotion. So being able to identify what that emotion is, what it means, and then finally finding the tool to be able to regulate or problem solve. And I think the what I'm seeing in a lot of clinical work also is that um, children and adolescents who lack those emotion regulation skills, emotion awareness, and have really dysregulated nervous systems, a lot of the times, of course, they have experiences that impacted that. But I hear a lot of the times that their parents were in a position where they were able to help the child regulate their emotions. So they never learned those tools. And unfortunately, we're not really taught these tools in the public school system. So yeah, we're seeing a lot of difficulties with emotion regulation and people end up adopting really unhealthy coping coping mechanisms. Yeah, because I was just thinking, of course, when you're sharing your story with your father, my father was the same way as a child, um, didn't display emotions at all. Um, and we didn't have much dialogue between each other. And thankfully, my mom um, was very good at displaying her emotions and showing affection and 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 helping to teach me how to regulate my emotions. But like you with your mom having the unpredictability, um, it was also like my dad didn't show his emotions, but he was also very unpredictable with his moods. Um, And that was really tough because as a child, of course, you don't understand. And so you're looking to your parents of like, show me, teach me. And so into adulthood, I started to have these really unhealthy, a really unhealthy relationship with my emotions. And Mm -hmm. I would have outbursts. I would, you know, be angry. And I just, I didn't know how to, to, how to deal with any of that. So much Mm -hmm. like you, you know, into early adulthood and relationships, all of that stuff manifested between, you know, intimate relationships, friendships, all of my relationships. It was like, I really didn't know how to navigate emotions. And you're right. It's not taught in schools. And so it's like, how do you learn? I mean, unless you have really healthy, you know, parents that that know and, and adopt these behaviors and display them, it's like, oh, goodness, you're going to run into a lot of, a lot of issues. Um, I'm curious. I know you talked a little bit about how it affected you um, going into adulthood. What are some things that you really struggled with um, relating to your trauma experience as a child? Oh, boy. Well, (laughs) I can totally relate to um, what you're saying about the intimate relationships and your friendships and um, you know, the listeners don't have the video, but we're looking at each other and I saw your eye roll and just, oh God, mm-hmm. like, you know, everything that you presumably went through when you were younger. Um, yeah, I mean, I would start with intimate relationships. That was a big one, right? Because I think that we all want love. It's universally what humans want. And I think what happens when parents are not in a place where they're able to foster that secure attachment with children because your child's brain is still developing, you don't have the capacity to think, oh, well, mom and dad are just going through a hard time and they're trying the best they can and how they treat me 
has nothing to do with me. That's not how the child brain works, right? The child brain goes, there's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. Why aren't they coming to soothe me, to help me? It must be me, 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 me. I'm wrong. I'm defective. Um, so that's seeped into my adulthood in several ways. I would say the first one is I ended up getting in relationships with very unemotionally available people um, because that was what I was used to. The human brain likes predictability, it likes sameness, and that's what my nervous system and my body was used to. Also, because of the divorce and because of the marital conflict in the family, I, my brain learned to associate love with pain. So again, those emotionally unavailable people, although they at times felt like, made me feel like it was love, also brought pain. Um, So it was hard because I think my higher self knew it was wrong, but my inner child essentially was addicted to it because that's what I was familiar with growing up. Um, another piece too is because there wasn't that unconditional love that I had felt from my parents. And again, I will say, I knew they loved me, but it's just the body and the energy. Like that's what we pick up on, right? That wasn't there. So because of that, um, I learned to associate external accomplishments with my Mm self-worth because when I achieved, then I got mom and dad's attention. And that manifested as full-blown perfectionism, Shannon. I can't even tell you it was (laughs) not good, especially in the context of grad school and undergrad when it's very performance and a driven and evaluative that turned into perfectionism. And I was always chasing that feeling of happiness and worthiness and accomplishment after accomplishment, it never, it never, it never came. So I would say that impacted my adulthood as well. And then the things that you touched on, like not being able to regulate emotions. I also had a lot of unhealthy coping strategies, like drinking and partying a lot during my younger years, just trying to run and escape from emotions rather than sitting with them because I didn't have the skills and strategies to deal with them. Right. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that is such a tough one to talk about. I think I also, same. It's like (laughs) so similar our stories. I mean, I did the same thing. I thought that, you know, alcohol gave me some relief on so many different levels, but it like honestly just made everything so much more challenging for me Mm -hmm. because I was using it entirely to cover up my emotions, to run, to not have to feel the hard stuff. And I think that's why, you know, going back to being in therapy and, you know, being 23, 24 made perfect sense why it was bubbling up then because I had honestly tried so hard to repress it for so long and to not feel that stuff and to not, you know, have to experience, you know, the emotions again that I did experience as a child. Um, I'm curious, did your experiences ever lead to anxiety or any any issues with anxiety? Yes. So <laughs> it's funny that you bring that up because I was also going to bring that up because I know that your niche is like anxiety and panic and um, anxiety related disorders. But I was just thinking about, you know, 
alcohol is a depressant, right? So mm-hmm. just not knowing how to soothe that nervous system. I mean, alcohol, it just, it really does chill you out for a bit, but then obviously it comes with the consequences of disinhibition and obviously you pay for it the next morning. But yeah, I mean, anxiety got really bad because um, navigating those relationships, for example, I always felt like I was walking on eggshells and, you know, coming from an un a family where people were unpredictable, I learned to be super hyper-vigilant, reading cues, looking for safety, uh, so that I carried on into my relationships and made me very clingy and almost seeking reassurance all the time. And that was anxiety-provoking. When are they going to leave me? When is the next time a big fight is going to break out? Did I say something wrong? oh, why are they talking to this person? So a lot of paranoia and anxiety from that. And then when it really manifested into perfectionism, again, that was really anxiety provoking because I didn't want to make mistakes. It was hard to hear feedback. I felt like I always had to put on a perfect image of myself and that took a lot of work to maintain So it definitely really exacerbated my anxiety. Yeah, same. (laughs) I'm so glad that you talked about like looking for safety. That's like ultimately what it came down to for me. And I didn't understand that until I was an adult. And I was Mm -hmm. like, why do I in every scenario seek out safety? Like I was constant in the mindset of, am I safe? I'm not safe. How can I be safe? What what can I do? What behaviors can I control um, so that I'm going to feel more safe? And, you know, for me, alcohol was one of those things that I went to. It made me feel like I had a bit more control. I didn't feel the hard stuff as much. I could move mm-hmm. through life seemingly easier. But <laughs> mm-hmm. like I said before, it just ended up making things so much harder for me. But I think too, you know, there's a there's a whole control aspect, right? When you have gone through any sort of emotional abuse or um, neglect or feeling like you didn't get that love and support that you needed as a child, I feel like you start to develop this sense of, I need control Mm. in like any and all situations. And I can totally relate to the perfectionism because you feel like if there's a way that I can, you know, have control over this situation and, you know, I am going to somehow get what I'm looking for by doing this behavior. It's very similar, right, to reassurance seeking, to to all of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, like for you, like you said, reassurance seeking was such a big one because I felt like if other people tell me that I'm okay and if other people tell me that I'm safe and if other people tell me that they constantly love me, then then I'm safe. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that can be such a hard thing because anytime you feel out of control, I know for myself, the anxiety would go through the roof, right? Because you'd right. be like, Well, now I'm I'm not in control and that must mean that I'm not safe. Right. Yes. And you know, the control, it also just sneaks up in so many different ways too. Like sometimes I find myself frantically cleaning my house. And I'm like, oh, I'm just trying to be tidy. But then when I really pause and I'm like, this is a manifestation of anxiety, Um, planning things. And I mean, I know a lot of people struggle with disordered eating and that can also be sometimes a need for control too. So 
yeah, it really is tough, you know, and it just reminds me how critical those early years are because it just has such profound impacts on your adulthood and can take so many different forms. Yeah, for sure. So what are some things that like helped you to have a healthier relationship with your emotions and just helped you to work through some of the stuff that you experienced? Mm -hmm. So I would say the first thing, (laughs) no, not, I was going to say self-reflection, but even before that, I honestly think it was this program like psychology because I went into it through like my passion and curiosity for people. And I didn't necessarily self-identify myself as someone who was struggling with, you know, a traumatic past or someone with anxiety. I think I was very much like in the dark or in denial, but I would say the program. And then once I started learning about some of this stuff and it opened my eyes, then that really prompted the self-reflection. So I would say awareness is the first step towards healing because you can't address what you don't understand. So I started with books. I read a lot of books and listened to a lot of podcasts that Mm -hmm. kind of started to get the wheels going. And then I also um, had a friend who was struggling with a lot of similar things. And she was a really cool inspiration because despite being in this program, she really owned like therapists don't have to be perfect. Therapists are human too. Therapists struggle with their own difficulties. And she started to seek out therapy, which helped me kind of shake up those barriers and the stigma and go to therapy myself. And that's when things really started to change because the insights that I got from therapy was life-changing. So I would say therapy and self-reflection and trying to consume as much content as you can to start that self-reflection piece. Um, And then I started to also explore some whole I don't, I want to say holistic, but I know that word has a lot of like, oh yeah, it's like voodoo, witchcraft. Like, (laughs) (laughs) but when I say that, I mean, just highlighting the mind body connection, right? Like we can't work on healing from anxiety, for example, by just restructuring thoughts with the nervous systems going crazy. How am I supposed to adopt these cognitive strategies? So I ended up um, exploring meditation. And that was helpful because it brought me to the present moment and just gave my brain like a moment to just chill out and not always be thinking about the future or the past. That also helped me learn to be an observer of my own thoughts and behaviors, which then reinforced how much self-reflection I was doing, which was helpful. And it soothed my body. I started uh, playing around with yoga and really focusing on the sensations of my body and being like, oh, this is what it feels like to be here. And this is what it feels like to be sad. And instead of running away from it, letting myself cry during a yoga session, letting myself be angry during a yoga session. So just coming home to my body um, And from an anxiety piece too, you know, when we look at animals, they get really anxious or stressed. They shake, they shake. Like when you see a dog, like when um, it's trapped somewhere, like the groomers or their crate and they come out, they kind of do a shake. And I think, um, I mean, I don't think, I know, because there's research to support this, that it's 
the energy, the emotion going somewhere. It needs to go somewhere. But as a human, we have learned to just suppress that and it gets stuck in our body. So stretching has helped me release the emotion energetically from my body as well. Um, And then I'll stop there, but I have a couple more thoughts about the journey as well. But I have been talking for a while. so No, you're fine. I love it. These are all really good things. So I love how you said, you know, the awareness and the education piece. It's so important, right? Because if you don't understand, you know, what's happening, why it's happening, um, or even be able to have the self-reflection, right, to recognize that it is happening, Mm -hmm. um, then it's really hard to move forward. But I'm curious, what is your relationship with alcohol now? Because they said, because we talked about, you know, how you didn't have such a healthy relationship with it before. What does that look like for you today? (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, (laughs) I'm still definitely a recreational drinker. Um, I love having a nice glass of wine with my partner and dinner. And I love hanging out with my friends, right? And letting loose, right? I'm human. Um, But I still try to be mindful of not reaching for something when I notice I'm stressed. I'm not perfect. I do have weak moments. I still do it, but it's definitely a lot better Um, because at the time I didn't even realize that what I was experiencing was anxiety, right? I was just like, something feels weird and I know this makes me feel better. So I'm just going to do it and drink it and keep doing it. So now knowing and being aware that that is a tendency that I do when I notice that urge, I now have a little bit of space to be like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to resist it and do something else because this old pattern is popping up. So I'm definitely in a lot healthier place. Um, but I'm definitely not perfect. And the pandemic and the lockdowns have definitely tested me. Um, but definitely getting better and hope to get better. Yeah, I so appreciate you being honest about that, right? Because I think it's such a hard thing to to be honest with ourselves and to say, sometimes I do reach for unhealthy coping mechanisms. And but it's the important part is being able to acknowledge it, right? And being aware mm-hmm. that you're you're doing it and that's huge. And just recognizing what what role it can play and and making the healthier decisions. But you're exactly right. We're all human and the pandemic has just been <laughs> immensely stressful and overwhelming for everyone. And so makes perfect sense, right? Um, but now you at least have that understanding of what what's healthy for you and what what isn't healthy. Um, so I, I definitely want you to jump in. What are some more thoughts that you have? Yeah, sure. Uh, So when I was thinking about, you know, the perfectionism piece, that was a big one for me, especially being in like such an intense program where it's being evaluated all the time. Um, So one of the first things I remember doing is exploring meditations that were targeted towards like building my self-esteem and my self-compassion. And I think what was so powerful about that was just listening to someone say things in a different way to me, right? Growing up around invalidation, criticism, and pressure, you hear these things over and over again, and it's almost like you don't know how to think differently. And being able to listen to these voices that were being so nice to me, I would really cry sometimes. And I think like that crying was cathartic, right? It just released like all of this tension and shame and 
criticism that I held on for so many years. So I really loved that. I loved journaling. And then I got into self-affirmations too, like listening to self-affirmations was really powerful. Because I think what is important and what we don't talk about a lot is our self-speech, right? Our thoughts, we have control over our thoughts and the way we talk to ourselves actually does matter. And yeah, tomorrow, if you start to talk to yourself in a nicer way, no, you're not going to experience a miraculous change because it needs time. Your brain needs time. So I think just really staying committed to that was helpful because I did started to notice some change. And I ended up also keeping a book where every time I got like a compliment or like something small, or even it was like, I love your shoes today. I wrote it down because when I fell into those perfectionism traps where I was being self-critical. That's all I could see was the negative. I couldn't see the positive. So having that book was really helpful to be like, okay, my perfectionism is coming from the past. It's not actually me. And let me step out of the past, out of my old beliefs and into what's real and what's actually happening right now. And just doing that over and over again, being aware and able to step out of the past and step out of the old conditioning and unlearning that to make room to learn something new, to learn how to love myself, to learn how to validate myself. Um, So working on that was really big for me, learning how to validate myself and just being nice to myself. Like I'm not perfect and that's okay. And then I would also say for the intimacy piece, um, you know, it was really helpful. I'm very fortunate. My partner is pretty securely attached. So he's been able to hold the space when I do kind of waver into the avoidant or the anxious attachment kind of profile. Um, But communication, I think is really important communicating your vulnerabilities and to your partner or to a friend. Um, I also ended up getting a dog and I mean, my intention wasn't for her to teach me how to love. It was for me to go and get exercise. But she showed me how to feel love and really sit with that feeling and not run away from it. So those were really helpful. And, you know, of course, therapy (laughs) throughout it all. And again, I'm... I'm still working on all of this stuff every day, right? I have I have slip-ups, ups and downs, and I think I will for the rest of my life. And that's just a part of the journey. Thousand percent. I'm so glad that you said that because it is oftentimes people think like it's some journey that I'm just going to arrive to, right? Like, right. you know, people, when they talk to me about overcoming panic disorder and agoraphobia, they're like, so when did it happen? And I'm like, well, I can tell you, I just didn't wake up one morning and go, whoa, today's the day I'm recovered. Right. <laughs> it's such a consistent effort in practicing the healthy habits and, and all of that stuff. But I, I was so happy to hear you say, positive self-talk. I am such a huge advocate of positive self-talk and especially having any trauma. It can be something that really helps you to boost your self-esteem and just your self-compassion, like acknowledging, like you said, there were so many times, it was literally every single day that I was so mean to myself and I would give myself just the most horrible messages. And I never even realized it because I was like on autopilot half the time. And I not only would think them, but I would believe them. And it really took like me 
developing this skill of using positive self-talk to start to change that narrative and for me to start to believe it. And of course, initially when I started using positive self-talk, I thought it was <laughs> woo-woo and I didn't really think that it was going to help, but it hugely helped me. And of course, it's not like the only thing, like don't put all your eggs in the positive self-talk basket. Right. Saying mantras is not the only thing that's going to help you. But I think, you know, affirmations and, and positive self-talk, they definitely don't get enough credit for the amount that they can help and benefit you, especially if you struggle with self-esteem and just not knowing your worth and not being compassionate with yourself. Cause that's mm-hmm. such a huge part of recovery, right? Like, mm-hmm. and just life, life in general, like feeling whole, feeling fulfilled, f- feeling the good emotions as well as the the tough ones. Like you, you have to be compassionate with yourself and I love that you said you wrote down compliments that people gave you. Like that, it sounds so silly, right? Like that's yeah. something like if somebody told me, I'd be like, oh my God, <laughs> but it's so right. cool. Like it's such a good idea. I mean, it's like me. I literally wrote in a journal, like every win that mm-hmm. I ever had. And it might have like, if somebody had read that journal, guaranteed they would have been like, oh, this lady is wacky. But <laughs> yeah. I would write down the like silliest things, but they were so big and so huge to me. And like, nobody could take that away from me. I wrote that in yeah. a journal and it meant something to me. And it was so huge and significant. And like, I just wanted a place where I could recognize and acknowledge it and celebrate myself. And like, that was, that was huge. So I'm like, so happy to hear (laughs) that like something similar helped you. Um, And it is, it's oftentimes like the silliest stuff, right? That you're like, this is not going to be helpful, but it's oftentimes those things that like help you the most. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that people might think it's a little counterintuitive, right? As a perfectionist or someone, yeah, as a perfectionist or someone who prides themselves in their like accomplishments, why would you just like keep writing down all the good things that are happening? Well, it's because the underlying thing from perfectionism is low self-worth, right? Is insecurity. And when we get into that space, that's all we can see. So then we go and try to be more of a perfectionist. We try to achieve more. But then when we look at that book, we're like, oh, okay. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, it's such a cycle. Yeah. So I'm curious if you don't mind answering and you can say, Shannon, no, I don't feel comfortable <laughs> answering that. But I'm really curious as to what your relationship is like today with your parents. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. So this is a big one. And I actually <laughs> forgot to talk about this when I was talking about the what I've done. So my parents, it's a really weird situation because they divorced, but now they're kind of back together. And I'm not really sure how much of that plays into my healing, you know, but um, we don't go in depth with these topics because of everything that's happened. And because of the way we are in our culture, it's just really weird to talk about feelings and stuff. But we try. So once in a while, we will have conversations about this. And usually I bring them up. And I think that it's more accepted because they're like, oh, she's a psychology major. So she's learning and applying to her own life. So she'll, they'll listen, right? Which is great. But um, we talk about this stuff. And yeah, it's hard, but it's been so healing. So for example, my mother, I remember her telling me that she, she can't watch baby videos of me because she just feels so bad. 
Mm-hmm. And she, you know, got really upset and then I got really upset, but that was such a good moment for us to bond. And it only happened because I said, hey, I'm learning about some of this stuff that's happening um, or I'm learning about some of this stuff at school about attachment. And I'm kind of wondering if you can tell me about the child, my childhood and what that was like and what you were like. And I started to ask them questions like, hey, did you ever hug me when I was younger? Or like, what was going on at the time? Were you guys fighting a lot? So genuinely taking that stance of curiosity and asking them questions and also not blaming, like you did this, so this is why I'm like that. I would ask them, oh, so you did had a hard time talking about emotions or dealing with emotions. Where do you think that came from? And eventually we started having some conversations about their own experiences with their parents. And then we get into that bigger topic of intergenerational trauma, right? So I think that that was a big part of my healing too, is having that conversation and treating my parents like a human, being like, what was going on? And you were struggling at the time and what were your intentions, right? And that was healing for me. So our relationship now, I think is a lot deeper because we've been able to address some of these things, but we still have so far to go um, because the conversations don't happen all the time because there still is all there are still a lot of barriers in place. Yeah, that is so stinking cool though. Like <laughs> that is so cool to hear. Like just the fact that you're having conversations and you're asking questions and you know the curious questions and it might be uncomfortable, but it most definitely leads to healing on both parts. So that is that's so amazing. I am just like amazed by so much of this conversation. <laughs> It's been great. Yeah. So I really appreciate you, Amy, coming on the podcast and being vulnerable and brave and talking about something that is definitely not easy to talk about. But I... I was just thinking in conversation, like, we're going to have to chat again because you and I have this anxious attachment that like, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to talk about, but it is a whole nother topic. And like, I struggled with it immensely. And so I think that would be really cool to dive into too at some point. But I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and I've enjoyed our conversation so much. Thank you for having me. And yes, I would love to connect again. This was really fun. And I thought that it was super organic and we covered a lot in a short amount of time. So it was great. So cool. All right. So if people want to find and connect with you, how can they find you? Where can they find you? Yes. So people can find me on my website. It's doodledwellness.com. So D-O-O-D led wellness and also my instagram which is where i talk more about some of the topics we covered today they're in a colorful illustrative format as well as reels and that is also at doodled wellness and yeah awesome thank you so much amy and definitely check out her instagram it is so so good <laughs> oh, thank you too kind <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of A Healthy Push. If you want more, head on over to ahealthypush.com for the show notes and lots more tips, tools, and inspiration that will support your recovery. And if you're hoping for me to cover a certain topic, be sure to join my Instagram community at A Healthy Push and let me know in the comments what you want to hear next.